through your word. We ask you to prepare our hearts to come to your table, to obediently observe uh, that very symbol that you have given us, those reminders, those emblems of what you've done for us in Christ, who we are in Christ, and what you will do for us in Christ in the future. May you accomplish your good work, your sanctifying work in our hearts. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, open up your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. This is part 7 of his message to the church at Philadelphia. Uh, found in chapter, verses uh, 7 through 13. Of course, there's seven parts because we've taken a few breaks along the way. Uh, but this is the last one. That we'll wrap it up this morning. And we'll wrap it up, of course, as uh, we do with each of the churches, with that final message of Christ uh, to the church of encouragement to those who are faithful. And in that common uh, refrain, to the overcomer, which is simply a description of a Christian, a common way that John also describes them in his first epistle. The overcomer, the one who overcomes the world, overcomes the temptations of the world, overcomes all of the pitfalls to their faith and perseveres to the end and therefore giving testimony of God's grace in their life. And so he he is wrapping it up with a message then to believers, to believers addressed first to the church at Philadelphia, but to all of us in the church uh, throughout the ages. So let us begin by reading the message, and then we'll consider his promise. Let's read the entire section here, beginning in verse 7 and going all the way down to verse 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds, behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you because you have kept the word of my perseverance I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God. And my new name, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so is the message of Christ to this faithful body of believers, a faithful body of believers who maintained their testimony of their love for Christ and their commitment to Christ, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of opportunities to compromise, even in the midst of suffering, they remained faithful to Christ. And so he encourages them and his people again throughout all of the ages. 
And he ends with what we've entitled uh, this last message to all the churches, a covenant promise. And we remember that we are in the new covenant. The new covenant comes with these promises, uh, many promises, the forgiveness of sin, the indwelling Holy Spirit, but also this full future reality. We have the first taste of this glorious covenant uh, given to us by God, ratified to us by Christ, applied to us by the Holy Spirit, and given to us as an encouragement to know its completion one day in the future. And we await that day. And so he gives us great things to anticipate. And so let's consider what he says here uh, through, to the church of Philadelphia, but through them to us. And he begins in verse 11. And really here he's wrapping up what he just said in that promise in verse 10. That he will keep them from the hour of testing that's to come upon the whole world. And then he adds to that in, in verse 11. He says, I am coming quickly. I am coming quickly. You can hold on because I am coming. Because whatever you're enduring now in terms of suffering is not forever. Know that I am aware of it and know that I am coming. What coming is he talking about here? Well, he's coming to bring to them the promise of sparing them from the hour of testing. He's coming to bring them the promise of sparing them from the hour of testing and affirming to them that they are loved by him. Of course, the coming is used many times in Revelation and throughout Scripture, particularly the New Testament. It is a time that for unbelievers in this will be a time of him beginning his judgment on the world. It is for them something to be feared. But for believers, it is a time of salvation. It is a time of salvation. It's not likely here, just as a note, the second coming in Revelation 19, because as we've noted, there's still a lot of other events to happen, and there's some very specific timetables in Revelation, very specific time markers uh, that uh, they know how long the things that they're going to endure are going to go on. But here there's the idea of imminence, and so he's just telling them, hold on, because at some moment I am coming quickly. At some moment I will get, begin to bring about all of these promises uh, that I have made to you. In short, however, it is just generally this. It's an encouragement to the church to look past the present trouble to future blessings. And as we've noted many, many times, that we as Christians live in hope. That's the very essence of our faith. That's the very essence of the faith of the believers in God throughout the whole history of creation. That those who have known God, those who have believed in the promises of God, have lived in hope. And hope, and so this is essentially what this is, and hope, don't worry, I'm coming quickly to you. I will not leave you as strangers and sojourners forever. I will bring you home. I will bring you to myself. And this is a tremendous promise to us. Uh, Calvin said, speaking of this anticipation of being with the Lord at his coming, in typical Calvinist style, uh, he says this, Woe to our stupidity, which, which exercises such power over us that we never think seriously about the coming of Christ to which we ought to give our whole attention. We are, we are fools if we're not anticipating this day. And I think as I say that, uh, many of us feel foolish for not doing so. 
This is a day that we should think often of as we, we can't read through the, the, the account of the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11. We certainly can't read through the New Testament and the life of Paul without realizing that the most godly of God's people are those who were consumed with the reality of their hope, of the salvation to be brought to them. That they were living something beyond for something beyond what they were experiencing here, but for the future. It was for that reason that Moses was able to give up all of the riches and the honor and the glory and the pleasures of Egypt because he had a better hope. He had something better. And so it is for believers. Why can they suffer? Why can they hide in caves? Why can they sneak around? Why can they live in fear in order to be faithful to Christ? Because they have a hope. They have a hope that's better. And they know that this is only temporary. And so he tells them, I am coming quickly. I will bring with me everything that I have promised. And so he says... To them, because this is true, hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. Hold fast what you have. What is it that they have? Well, they have the certainty of the reward of his salvation through faith. They have the certainty of this reward because they have held on to his promise. So essentially what they have is the possession of his saving work in their lives manifest through their obedient faith. And through their obedient faith testifying to be the people of God and therefore the ones who will receive his promise. Who will experience this promise. Hold on what you have. Don't let go of your hope. And then he says this. He says, so that no one will take your crown. So no one will take your crown. Well, there's two questions here. What is the crown? And how could anyone take it from them? If it was given by Christ, if it belongs to them, how could someone take it? Well, first, just briefly, what is a crown? What is a crown? What does he mean here? Well, the term is not an uncommon term, either even in the New Testament or in classical Greek or around it. It speaks of, it has the idea of a, of a circle, of a surrounding, but, the, but it speaks of a wreath. It speaks of some emblem that is put on the head for a variety of reasons. Uh, it could be for victory, festivity, worship, public office, kingship, a variety of things are listed. Sometimes it was used simply as a mark of honor. And it's found this way even in the Old Testament in the Septuagint translation where in Proverbs 17, 6, grandchildren are the crown of old men. They're the honor of old men. In the New Testament, the term is used only four times and it's to speak of the crown that was placed on Christ's head as a means of mockery that the Roman soldiers put there when they also put the reed on his hand and clothed him in a purple robe and hail the king of the Jews and, and so forth. But in the epistles, it has the imagery of athletic victory, and that's a common use of this crown. And you're familiar with this. And it has, uh, it's used to say that, look, there is a, a kind of honor, there's a kind of glory that comes to those who achieve great things, whether in an athletic contest or whatever here. But we as Christians have a greater hope. And so we're familiar with these words of Paul to the Corinthians. Everyone who competes in the games... 1 Corinthians 9, 25, exercises self-control in all things. They to receive a perishable wreath or crown, that's our word, uh, but we an imperishable one. Sometimes it's used as a symbol of faithfulness. For Paul, he uses it that way to say he gets to present to Christ for glory uh, his own his, the fruit of his own work in the formation of the church. And so he says to the Thessalonians, uh, and to the Philippians, but in Thessalonians he says this, verse 219, 
or chapter 2, verse 19. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. In other words, Paul gets to say, look, Christ, what is the fruit of my faithfulness to you. And that's the gift that I get to present and I get to rejoice in when he comes, is to say, here is a true manifestation of the sincerity of my ministry that I get to present to Christ upon his return as a gift to this glorious king. And it resounds back to himself as well that he gets to delight in the privilege and the honor of being used by Christ to such an end as to form the church. And so he says that even of the church, that they, the church himself, is his crown. In Revelation, we have 24 elders who fall down before him in verse 4 and 10, who sits before the throne, and they cast their crowns before the throne. So the crown then has this idea of, of honor and glory and its general usage, something that uh, points to the accomplishments of an individual. But very often, and this is getting a little more, a little closer to what he means here, is the imagery of the crown in relation to believers is usually given some kind of modifier. Let me just give you three common. So in 2 Timothy 4.8, he says there is the crown of righteousness. And this probably is most likely meaning the full glory of our total conformity to the righteousness of Christ. The end of our justification by faith, our glorification, when who we are in Christ becomes the full reality of our experience. No longer encumbered with this body of flesh, those things that uh, make righteousness uh, not so evident in our life. He says there's the crown of righteousness and it's what Paul is going to receive, but not only Paul, but also all who loved his appearing. We'll realize the fullness of our position in Christ. In 1 Peter 5, 4 to faithful elders, he says they will receive the unfading crown of glory. And that's simply referring to that eternal glory of those who are with Christ. And again, who are proved to be faithful and so proved to be his. And there's a crown of glory that... Uh, all of those were received. In James 1.12 and in Revelation 2.10, there's the crown of life. And this is the final reward of the full experience of our inheritance of eternal life. That is our shared life with God. So this crown then includes the idea of reward, but not in the sense of a wage earned, but in the sense of overwhelming grace that God gives because of the faithfulness of those he has redeemed. So crowns of the believer, while including the idea of reward for faithful service, are not actual crowns stacked up. I mean, it's not like you're going to have like a crown on your head. That's going to be the crown of righteousness. And you got another one on top of that. It's the crown of glory. And then you get another one on top of that, and that's the crown of eternal life. And then, you know, you're just stacking up crowns. That's not the idea. Each of those are descriptions of this one reality of the full experience of our redemption in Christ, of having been, our salvation having been completed, having been fully realized in Christ in the age to come. It brings to light the manifold glory and wonders of our redemption that we will forever, we will forever reflect the honor and the glory of Christ and his mercy to us. And that's why whatever crown we have, we would gladly throw back down at his feet and acknowledge that it's from you, through you, and to you are all things. 
Now, interestingly here, when he says this to the church at Philadelphia, there's no modifier. He just simply says, so that no one will take your crown. And that's interesting. And it reflects a little bit of what he said back in verse 8, where he says, I know your deeds. Now, usually when he says, I know your deeds, he follows that by some description. Usually when he says crown, he follows that by some modifier, such as in 2.10 of Revelation, the crown of life. But here he just says crown. And so probably the idea is best that he's simply referring that nobody take away from you the fullness of all that you are Gaining by your faithfulness to the gospel of Christ. All of the glories. It probably includes all of those ideas. All of the wonders of the experience of redemption. It's left ambiguous on purpose. Let no one take away from you what you are demonstrating to be your possession. Namely, all of the promises that are yours in Christ. All of the future glories that are promised to you in Christ. Now then that has a second question then. How can it be taken away? How could anyone take their crown since Christ gives it to them? How could anyone do it? How, how, could, they, how could they lose something that is given to them? Well, the fact that Christ exhorts them to hold fast to it. If you look there, he says, hold fast to what you have. It's a strong word there. The idea is, is cling to it, cling tightly to it. You need to hold fast to what you have so that you do not lose this reward. And hold fast into your obedient faith. Hold fast to your hope of the promise of reward. And the, and the idea here is likely that they are undergoing a trial and they're going to continue to undergo trial. And this trial is going to threaten their faith. And so he's saying, don't let go. Don't let go. So it could be a warning here. Not to turn away from their hope, an an exhortation to persevere in temptation and not to compromise. Because that's the whole of the Christian life, isn't it? A perseverance. We often, you hear that what threatens the, the full enjoyment of our salvation is temptation from the world, the devil, and our own sin, our own flesh. There's all kinds of things that are designed by the enemy of our souls to to destroy our faith. And there is a sense then in which Scripture then reminds us and God through His Word to not to compromise and to hold on tightly. It's It's a common encouragement. Let me just remind you of one passage. In Hebrews chapter 10, if you're familiar with the context of Hebrews, he's writing to a primary, a Jewish congregation and they were... In danger of forsaking the gospel, the hope of Christ as their Messiah, and turning back to the old covenant and turning back to the old ways because there was an increasing price to pay because of their testimony of faith in Christ. And so he warns them, he warns them of the danger of doing that throughout Hebrews and several passages, but let me read to you out of chapter 10. He says this after he's given them some pretty strong warnings already. Beginning with, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. And the sinning there willfully has the idea, that idea of rejecting the gospel, the truth of the gospel, rejecting what has been brought to you and turning back to this old system that you know to be empty and vacuous just to escape persecution. And he says here, though, as he ends this warning, he says in verse 35, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Verse 36, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. 
And they need endurance in their suffering. He said back in verse 32, Remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured with great conflict of suffering, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches. In other words, you were shamed publicly. You were reproached publicly. You were ridiculed publicly. He says, And tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers of those who were so treated. He says, You joyfully accepted the seizure of your property, knowing for yourself that you have a better possession and a lasting one. And so he's saying, you've done all those things, you've endured, you've suffered, you've been shamed. Don't let that count for nothing. Don't turn away. Don't, don't lose that, that faith and that persevering drive to hold on. It's the same idea. is hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Because if you turn away, you lose it all. Namely, Salvation. Not that it was lost, but that you'll show that you never did truly belong to Christ. And so that could be the idea here. We'll return to that in just a bit. But that you need to, you need to hold on to what you have and don't give in to the suffering. Don't give in to the shame. Don't give in to the doubt. Don't give in to that inner conflict if it would come your way. But hold fast to the promise of Christ and don't let anybody take it away nobody who threatens you take away your confidence and your hope it may also be a use of language similar to what he used in 3 5 where he says I will not erase his name from the book of life and we noted there it's a figure of speech it's a use of language in which something positive is state is or some a negative statement is to affirm something positive and so to say I will, uh, his name, will not erase his name from the book of life is to say that the name of those who are there is secure, is permanent. Nothing can take it away. And it may be that's the same idea here, that no one will take your crown. In other words, because no one can take your crown. It could be rephrased then in this way, barring one person's rephrasing of it, who takes it that way, so that you will without question receive what is waiting for you. Well, there's a sense in which both ideas are present. They must continue to hold on and hold on because of the the certainty of the reward. But the emphasis seems to fall on the exhortation to persevere with the encouragement of keeping their crown, their reward. And so manifesting and proving their salvation. And by doing that, holding on to Christ, we're really proving this, that Christ is holding on to his people. So there's two parts to the way that Scripture speaks about this need to persevere. And by that, I just think it's a footnote to say that the warning passages in Scripture are there for believers, not for unbelievers. Warning passages are for believers. Why? Why would God give warning passages to believers? How would they function in a believer's life for good? Well, they function as a means of perseverance. What happens to a believer when there's sin in their life and there's temptation to compromise and they read about the seriousness of it? What happens? Deeply convicted, deeply miserable, deeply fearful of the realization of being able to be shown not to belong to Christ. Deeply fearful of the possibility then of losing everything that is promised in Christ. And so when a believer hears a warning passage, particularly if there's compromise with sin or the temptation to compromise on the gospel, and they hear those warnings and they're driven back to the foot of the cross for grace in Christ. Have you experienced that in your life? I have. I think many of us have who have walked with the Lord. You're driven back to the cross. You're driven back because of the fearful expectation of what it would mean not to do so. 
And so God uses those warning passages for believers to prove, to prove them ultimately by their response to them and their faithfulness. So there's really two parts to this then. From God's side, there is a certainty that those who belong to him will receive the full reward. That nothing can take that away. That, that those who Christ has redeemed, he's redeemed forever. He's redeemed certainly. He's redeemed absolutely. In the book of Hebrews, actually uh, in chapter 10 itself, he says that there's only one sacrifice. One sacrifice has been made for all time. There's one sacrifice. There's no longer a a sacrifice needed for sin, not even some ultimate sin of unbelief or sin turning. It means he's, he's provided for every sin of his people. And in God's mind, it's certain that he will bring his people to their heavenly home. Let me give you just one passage here. Obviously, there's many places we could go, but this gets right to the point. In Romans 8, 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Here it is. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he called. Whom he called, he justified. Whom he justified, he glorified. Do you notice something about those words, particularly in verse 30? They're past tense. They're done. It's completed in the mind of God. Remember that salvation was in Christ before the foundation of the world. We were adopted in Christ before the foundation of the world. Before God created anything, he already, because of his infinite nature, and particularly in relation to time, his eternality, it's a done deal for him. Everything that works out is working out the eternal purpose of God. And so here he's saying, whom he foreknew, that doesn't mean merely by omniscience that he saw who would believe. The idea of foreknown, saying those whom he had determined to enter into relationship. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world in 1 Peter 1. It doesn't mean that Christ would be born and go, oh, hey, here's my omniscience tells me all of a sudden that this would be one who'd be a good Messiah. No, it was planned before the foundation of the world. Israel was foreknown, not simply that a nation through Abraham would all of a sudden start believing him and, hey, here's the one I'll pick to be a covenant nation. No, they were foreknown because God had determined to enter into covenant relation with them before the foundation of the world. And so it is with believers to say that they were foreknown is to speak of God's determination and knowledge of what his intent was and his purpose before the foundation of the world to those he would adopt in his son Christ in election. And he's saying those whom he foreknow, those are the ones he predestined. He determined that they would be the ones that he calls out of a fallen world to be near him and to be with himself and to know his promises of redemption. That these are the ones then, because he predestined them, he would call, he would work in their life in such a way so as to secure their response by faith and repentance to his promise, to his work, to the declaration of his covenant redemption. And those whom he would call, he would justify. He would declare them to be right before him, ultimately in Christ. And then he would glorify them. So he's saying it's done. It's a done deal. Nothing can change that. So from God's side, it's already done. But from man's side, there's the reality of persevering, persevering by faith. And so we find these words, such as Christ here, hold fast so that no one will take your crown. We hear the words of Paul to the church in Colossae that you need to, if you continue to the end, and that's a repeated reality. So the encouragement here is that to know that despite our weakness, how is that encouragement, you might ask? 
is this way. So that despite our weakness, our security rests in the completed work of Christ. And that completed work of Christ on our behalf guarantees through all of the, the glories of redemption, not only foreknowledge and predestination and calling and justification and glorification and indwelling Holy Spirit and regeneration and all of those things in union with Christ. It is to say that how that works out in our life is through our perseverance. It's through our perseverance. So the righteous hear these words and want to press on in faith. If someone is unsaved and they've never actually experienced the regenerating work of God, they're not indwelled by the Spirit, not in union with Christ, or not justified, then ultimately the pressures will be too much. And they'll turn away. And they'll be in the category of what John said in 1 John. They went out from us because why? They weren't really of us. They were never really of us. They were temporary believers. They had a temporary, spurious, shallow, superficial, empty faith. And so here he says, though, that's not true of you. And he says, I'm coming quickly. And what's true of you is that you have shown yourself to be faithful. Now I'm encouraging you to keep being faithful. Don't lose what you have in Christ, in me. And so the believers will hear that and say, yes, yes, Lord, I want to persevere. I want to continue. I don't want to lose what you've given to me. So if you've been a Christian for very long, you've experienced this reality, haven't you? If you've been a Christian for very long, you know this reality. While you may struggle to walk in faith and obedience and stumble many times along the way, you realize with an ever-increasing sense of certainty that you are inept and unable to live a life of holiness as you should. You realize it. You realize that you are kept and restored routinely to God through Christ because of his grace to you. If you are a believer who has even the the smallest amount of sanctified self-awareness, you can say this in your heart. If God were to leave me by myself, I would walk away. I would turn back to the world. I would give up my salvation for the vanity of sin. You know that's in your heart. But if you walk with Christ, and particularly as years go by of walking with Christ, you become more and more convinced of this, that it's really Christ holding on to me. It's really Christ holding on to me. And he's holding on to me, and I know that, because every time I would fail, he restores me. He he keeps me, turns me back. He brings me to repentance. He brings me to cry out for the gospel. And so that's the confidence, and that's the hope. I, I know I, I say often in, in, uh, when we listen in conversations about these things that to somebody to think that they have to hold on to their own salvation and that it's all up to them, the first thing I ask myself or think to myself is, do you live with yourself? Do you live with yourself? Do you know your own heart? And yet, that doesn't cause us to be lazy, but it causes us to hear these words and say, yes. Hold fast, persevere, cling to the promise. And so we fight the good fight of faith because he gives us strength and he keeps us fighting. And then what is the end? What is it that won't be taken away? Verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down of heaven from my God and my new name. Tremendous promise that really encapsulates all of the longings and the desires of the believing heart. 
What does he mean? He says, I will make him a temple, a pillar in the temple of my God. Well, there's a variety of suggestions of what that means in terms of being made a pillar in the temple of God. But let's begin just by very, very briefly considering what was the temple. This isn't a a full theology of the temple, but, but let's just basically remind us what was the significance of the temple in the, God's purposes for his people? How does that relate here to this promise? Well, if you'll remember, the, the temple was the second structure. The first structure was the tabernacle because it could be packed up and moved as they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. But when they were permanently in the land that God had ordained in Jerusalem, then they built the temple. God built the temple through Solomon. It was his permanent structure. It was there to stay. It was intended for that purpose. But what was the point then of the tabernacle and of the temple? It was, as Exodus 29:45, God says, and I will dwell among the sons of Israel and I will be their God. In Deuteronomy 4-7 we have these words, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call upon him. What was the significance of the temple was this, it was a symbol to show that God dwelled among his people. He was near, he was present, he was there. He was accessible through the priesthood, through the sacrifices. He was in the midst of the camp. It's there that his presence uniquely dwelled. It was there that they could be continually reminded that he is their God and they are his covenant people and that he has redeemed them and that he has opened a way of access to his presence and to his redemption and to his glory. That was the point of it. And therefore the temple and the idea of being near to God and all of those things was the longing of the believing heart in the Old Testament of the regenerate Old Testament saint, the true people of God. Just listen to a couple of uh, familiar words in Psalm 23 where David talks about the Lord as his shepherd. He says this, he says, you prepared, well, in verse 6, surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of the life. And what? And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In Psalm 27, 4, he says, One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty or the loveliness of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Later, that's transferred into obedience to this command in verse 8. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. In Psalm 84, we've looked at that in the past. The longing of the believing heart was to be near to the courts of the Lord. Verse 1, how lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. And he goes on. He's not saying, I just want to look at the pretty structure. He says, because you're there, you're there uniquely. Your presence is there in a way that delights and excites my heart. And I want to be there. That's where I want to be. And that was the idea of the temple. And gloriously in the New Testament, this is taken over and in the New Covenant where the presence of God is no longer in the temple. We come here in Newtown. We don't travel over to Israel to meet with God. We gather as the people of God here. Why? Well, we're familiar with this. And we're going to remember this and symbolize it in the Lord's table in a few moments. But it is that in some profound way, 
the people of God, indwelled by the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ, and who are the body of Christ on earth, constitute the presence of God among men. And in that presence of God among men, we are described then as the temple of God, the dwelling place of God, and it is anticipation of the future glories where all of that will find its final expression in the new heavens and the new earth. Now this just helps us get a little bit closer to what he means there when he says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Listen to what he says, familiar words, let me remind you. In Ephesians 2, he talks about also in 1 Peter 2 and other places, but here in Ephesians 2. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple of the Lord, or sanctuary, or dwelling place, or abode of the Lord. Temple in the Lord, in whom you are being built together as a dwelling of God in the Spirit. That's the idea. So now there's this temple imagery that constitutes the people of God, that we are the dwelling of God. We don't travel somewhere. It's uniquely manifest together as the body of Christ, but it's even applied to individuals. So in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, he says, Do you not know to a sinning brother that you are a temple of the living God? That your body is not your own, that you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So it's true individually, but it's manifestly true and distinctly true of us as the people of God together who constitute the body of Christ and the new temple. Now we feel a tension here then between the realization of this promise to be made a pillar in the temple of God and where we are now. And the tension is, is that while all of those things are true and God's presence is uniquely in us, we don't have the full experience of it because of sin. And so the hope and the longing of the believer is to have the barrier of our flesh removed so that we can fully delight in and enjoy in the reality of the promises that have been given to us. Now I'm just going to skip ahead here to this. To the, the ideas, he says, and I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God is essentially saying this. Now, now you will remember that the ultimate end of it, uh, revelation, and the ultimate end of the promise is that there is no temple. There is no temple in this new Jerusalem coming down. Obviously, there's a lot there that we'll get to down the road. But there is no temple in it. So how does this relate and what temple is he talking about? Well, he's, he's certainly talking about that because he's going to describe it later as the new Jerusalem coming down. But in this new temple, in this temple imagery, even in the new heavens and in the new earth, there is no temple in it because all of the new heavens and the new earth is essentially the temple of God. The new Jerusalem is a cube like the Holy of Holies that comes down that his people travel in and out of. The glory of God is all around like the candlesticks that lit the first room, the holy place, as you walked into the tabernacle and then the temple of God. The bread of presence was represented the presence of God, but now it's everywhere in the full realization of our union with Christ. Ultimately, that's all anticipating what our salvation will be like in its full realization. And so to say I'll make you a temple, a temple 
or a pillar in the temple of my God is merely to say this, is essentially to say this, that you will be brought into the utmost nearness to God forever in his dwelling place forever. And so what the psalmist in Psalm 84 anticipated that he longs, blessed are those, and, and whose heart is the highway to that place, to the place of worship and temple, he says no longer will you be traveling there because that will be your permanent abode. That will be your constant state. You will be like a temple here in the place of the presence and the glory and the honor and the majesty of God. I'll make you a pillar in the temple of my God and it will be immovable. Look at what he says. And he will not go out from it anymore. He will not go out from it anymore. Now, if you'll remember, you probably don't, but way back in the introduction... Of here, We talked about one of the significant uh, cultural connections here was that the church in Philadelphia, they, they, most of the people lived outside of the city because in the city was a very dangerous place because of constant earthquakes. It was known for that. And so earthquakes would happen and as soon as they would, people would flee out. It was near a, vol- a, volcan- a volcano. And so they would leave. And so the idea here, he's probably connecting to that in some sense here, saying no one will, you'll never have to go out of it again. This is a city and this is a place that you won't have to flee from. It's permanent. It's forever. You'll never not be a temple, a pillar in the temple of my God. You'll never have to go out from it anymore. It'll be an unbroken, eternally secure spiritual intimacy and the realization of the longing of your regenerate heart. And then he powerfully brings that home in verse 12, or the second part. He says, And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. And my new name. We're familiar with the idea of name in Scripture and how significant it is in communicating, particularly in reference to God, all of who he is. He has his covenant name, Yahweh, that he revealed to Moses and the unique manifestation of that name and his commitment to his people when he delivered them and redeemed them out of Israel and so forth. He says, my name, my name, God repeatedly talks about his name as the fullness of who he is as he's revealed himself to be as the God of creation, the God of redemption, the God of Israel. The God of his people, the God who rules over the nations. All of that is encompassed in his name. Now what is, and so to hear is to simply say his name is all of who he is. All of of who he is. He said, I'll just give you a couple of examples. We won't look at all of them, but in to the church at Ephesus, he said, and you have perseverance and have endured for what? For my name's sake. What does it mean for my name's sake? It doesn't just mean the name Jesus Christ, as if that name has some special power just because of the name. But Jesus Christ as the God-man. Jesus Christ as the Redeemer. Jesus Christ as the one in whom your, your soul's salvation is secure. That Christ, that name, that person, and everything that is revealed about him. That's who you trusted in for the sake of my name. And so the name has a tremendous significance. Tremendous significance that here has, is explained in several different ways. Three different ways, actually. He says this. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and then my new name. So three ways he describes this. But before we look at it, I just briefly, you'll notice the repeated phrase. Again, it stood out to you. Of my God, of my God, 
of my God, from my God. What does he mean by that? Why does he say that? Why does he, well, you remember, we discussed that actually back in chapter, uh, the early part of the chapter in verse 2. When he says, I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. And we ask the question, why if Jesus is God and, and, and the scripture and particularly Revelation goes to great lengths to say that Jesus is in his essential nature not only truly human but is truly God. And is truly deserving of all the worship of God and truly possesses the power of God and the sovereignty of God and the glory of God and all of these things. And in fact, descriptions of Christ uh, given to him in his exalted state are also descriptions given to God and Yahweh in the Old Testament. In other words, they are one. So why would he say, my God? Well, for the very obvious reason that even in his exalted state, he is the God-man. He is the God-man. And so his divine nature is uniquely manifested through, and here, his exalted humanity. And this is exactly what was anticipated. And and I'm just going to mention this quickly. But it really kind of points us into, it kind of unfolds a little bit, gives one other part of what's meant here. In John 20, 17, after Jesus had been resurrected, and you might remember that some of the women came and they found the tomb empty, and Jesus appeared to them, and then he gave them a command to go to the disciples, to the brethren, to let them know that that he had been risen. And he says this to them in John 20, 17, to these ladies, and let's not miss the fact that these are women who were the first to discover the tomb and to bring the message. But he says this, particularly to Mary, he says, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. It's a tremendous statement. He says, go to my brethren. The first time he refers to them in this way in all of the gospel, and he's identifying with them, my brethren, the ones I came to redeem, the one whose nature I took on to redeem. And he's identifying them in that tremendous term that they are sharers in his new life and and they have a new relationship with God through him. And he says, my father and your father and my God and your God. And note the pronouns are important here. My and your, my and your. And he's making a distinction here. So he's, in doing that, he's doing two things. One, he's showing the connection, what is shared. And he's also showing the distinction and what uniquely belongs to him and what is then communicated to those who belong to him. So what he has by nature, we have then by grace is the idea. My father, the father whom he'd revealed, the father of whom he could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. My father who sent me, my fathers whose words I speak, mine that I have all of these things by my nature as the eternal word that was with God and was God, God who, was, who manifested the glory of God in flesh. What I have as God the Son revealed through the humanity that I took on to myself you have by grace and share with me so that now my father is your father because you're sons and daughters in me that my God, my God whom I honored and glorified on earth in my humanity you now share in as your God because of your union with me and so one kind of captured that I think in a helpful way And said this, a son, he has a father, and may we add, as man, he has a God 
And so that's the idea here. He says it's of my God. And what he's doing here is not diminishing his particular glory, but he's emphasizing that all of these things are being done in the full unity and purposes and glory of the Father. It's the name of my God. And then it's later my name. We share this together. To belong to me is to belong to God. To call God your Father is to do so because you're in me as the Son of the Father eternally who has redeemed you. So let's declare by that a little more. Look at what he says then. In the name of my God. In the name of my God is the first way. Or the first mention of this. And this is again common. He spoke this way even when he was on earth. Let me just remind you of a few. He says in John 5.43, I've come in my Father's name. In chapter 10 of John, he says, The works that I do in my Father's name. You reread this before when he was going to the cross. He says, Father, glorify your name. And then later he told his disciples, Whatever you ask in my name, I'll do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Later he said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Or before that he said that. When he was praying to the Father, he says this, Listen, I have manifested your name to men whom you gave me out of the world. Whose name did he manifest? Didn't he manifest his own name? Wasn't it Jesus Christ whom he manifested? Yes. And in doing so, he was manifesting the name of the Father. He says in verse 11 of chapter 17 of John, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, your name that you have given me. And to what end? Listen to this. And this helps fill out a little bit of what he's saying in Revelation. He says this, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given to me that they may be one even as we are. And then he says in the next verse, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given to me. That is name, the name of the Messiah, the name of the incarnate Son of God, the name of the Redeemer of his people, the name of the one who had come in obedience to the Father, to bring those given to him by the Father into the full realization of their adoption and salvation. He says at the end, I have made known your name to them, and I will make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So it's a glorious statement of his unity, of his purpose, not only as God, but as God the Redeemer. Not only as God, but the God-man who brings into himself a people to the most intimate fellowship with himself, and in doing so, to the most intimate fellowship with God, the Father. And then he says, then, the name of my God, he says, I'll write it on him. And this is the idea of ownership. Ownership. They're mine. They belong to me. It's not unlike what he has said before. I will confess them before the Father. The one I will confess, those who confess me, I will confess them. Confess them as what? As belonging to me, as being mine, as belonging to me. As the ones I love and came to redeem. And he says, I'll write on them the name of the city of my God. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from my God. Remember, and this is a quick note here, there is a divine order always displayed in the works of God. That is that the Father plans, it originates with the Father, that it is accomplished through the Son, and that it is applied through the Spirit who brings it about. It's a Trinitarian work. Everything that God does, He does as a Trinity. 
And we see that even here. It's a triune work of God. And here he says, the new Jerusalem comes from my God. And Jesus is anticipating again the great combination of God's dwelling among men. Well, throughout the Old Testament, I'll just summarize this and say God put his name in the temple. And here again is the full realization of that. The full realization of the significance of them, of him identifying himself and his presence with his people. First in the temple, then those who belong to Christ, and ultimately in the final expression, where in some profound way, and what is to really to us in some mysterious work of God, he writes his name on his people and says, Mine, mine, belonging to me, these are mine. These are my redeemed. These are my people. These are my brethren. These are my gift from the Father. These are my inheritance. It's a great statement of intimacy. It's a beautiful statement of intimacy. And that's really the whole idea of it. That new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. What's the purpose of it? It is to be the place where God's people forever live and dwell with him. And then he says, I'll write my new name. It's really a book into the first. I'll write the name of my God, the name of the city, and my name. All of these communicate this one thing. Divine grace of full fellowship and intimacy with the Father. So if we think of the triune work of God and salvation, it comes out from the Father. Why did he create anything? And through the Son, he engrafts the people into himself so that these people the adopted in Christ, share in the relationship that the Son has always had with the Father. That's why he says, so that the the Father loves you, even as he loved me. How could he say something like that? Because that love that he has for us is for the Son, comes through the Son, in the eternal expression of God's infinite and glorious grace. And here's the full realization of that. Let me just give this one verse. We mentioned it before. But at the end, he says, he who overcomes will inherit these things. Listen, and I will be his God and he will be my son. That means that the fellowship that the father has had with the son from all eternity, he engrafts us into that fellowship, into that life. And here's the way that he expresses it to the church at Philadelphia. I'll write on them my name. The ones who belong to me, the one who redeemed. I'll write on them the name of the city of saying they are the true citizens. They are the ones who belong there. I'll make them a pillar in the temple of my God. Nothing can ever change this position. Nothing will ever take it away. Nothing will ever threaten it. And I'll write on them my new name. So that forever we can delight in the joy of our union. And as Paul says, that forever he will express the riches of his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. One summed it up this way. The man so inscribed belongs to God and to the city of God and to the Son of God. And that's our hope. And that's our hope. And if you're a believer, that's the greatest thing that could ever come about. There could be no greater promise than this. That we'll be ever, forever with him, the one that we love. And when we come to the table, we're remembering this. We're remembering this. We're remembering that right now, God meets with us. As the gathered people of God, he's given us symbols of reminding us of this meeting with us every time we gather as his people, that he is reminding us that we are the redeemed, the called out ones, and we have a fellowship that was granted to us by grace, is preserved by grace, 
and will one day realize the fullness of this grace when we are with him forever. So let me pray, and then we'll take the elements, and then uh, we'll go on from there. Father, thank you for this promise. Help us to dwell on it. Lord, these things are too profound for us to grasp. We can't really, we can't really get it. We can't, we can't really understand the fullness of your glory and what it means to have been redeemed. But we know this. That when we stand in your presence and we're declared holy and blameless, the response of our heart will be great joy. And that great joy will be a joy that resounds through all of eternity. Lord, how could we not follow you in light of this? How could we not give you our entire lives? How could we not hate sin and love righteousness? How could we not long to just simply be used of you in this world? And Lord, that deepest desire of our heart who know, you's, who know you is that are those very things. But Lord, we get so tripped up. We, get, we stumble so much. So many other things distract our hearts. But please, Lord, work your grace in us to be renewed and refreshed continually and, and grow each time that we have to be restored, to learn a little bit more to increase in wisdom, and to learn to live lives more faithfully and use even now our time together around your table to that end. And so we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.